Good morning. And let's go ahead and begin with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We ask that your spirit will enlighten our minds and may we draw closer to you and to each other. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Before we get into the lesson, just a few announcements. Uh, particularly for our online audience, we've had a change in our mailing address. And if you haven't got that change, it's in the notes. It's on our website. So we've been getting uh, some correspondence and it's been going to the old address. They're forwarding it right now, but eventually they'll stop forwarding. So go ahead and, and get our new mailing address. For those who would like to know what it is, it's P.O. Box 28266, Chattanooga, Tennessee, 37424. And then the Journal of the Watcher, we presented it last week. It is available currently in the Google Play Store for those who have an Android operating system device. The Apple Store, while we have developed the, the app for the Apple Store, the Apple Store rejected the app, saying that it is a book and it should be an iBook instead of an app. And we appealed, and they denied the appeal. And so we've already got it rendered in the iBook format, and so now we just have to go through the process of putting it into the iBook store, which I don't know exactly how long that takes, a week, two weeks maybe. So it's, it'll be coming for the Apple platforms very soon, and we'll let you know when it's available. And then I've been traveling a lot, and I haven't given some updates on our travels. A few weeks back now, uh, we were at the American Association of Christian Counselors National Conference in Branson. It was a really good time, and we our, our booth was very popular. Again, we gave away several thousands of our DVDs, and, and could it be this simple to various groups, and they were very appreciative of that. So today, the lesson title this week is... Humility of Heavenly Wisdom, which is Lesson 8 in the uh, quarterly, the book of James. In the first paragraph, it says, In many mid-sized and larger companies, a middle manager mentality exists. This attitude happens when workers feel entitled to something they do not yet have. More respect, higher salary, more advanced position, and so on. This unhealthy attitude develops over time as persons strives as a per, the person strives to get ahead. Symptoms may include flattering remarks served up to decision makers and uncomplimentary re- revelations made about co-workers, all seasoned with a spirit of self-rivalry. When one major television news anchor advanced to the top without destroying others to get there, a colleague admiringly observed, there were no dead bodies. So, first question, what is it that drives people to be entitled? Self. Selfishness, she said. And what is it? Impose law. law. And what is it that drives that selfish drive? What's the emotion behind that? Fear. Fear. Isn't it fear? That if you don't strive to get yourself ahead, then you're afraid you won't be recognized. You won't get the promotion. You won't get the the job. So it's that uh, insecurity, that fear that drives people to to move forward in in self-promotion. There's a lesson that fear of not being recognized, fear of not getting one's own an ability to, and an inability to celebrate or rejoice in the successes of others. So it's not just a fear of not getting yours, but there's an inability. If you notice people, they actually get angry or, or envious when somebody else succeeds and they don't. So this is the survival of the fittest drive, is what it is. Watching out for me. And this motive contaminates and destroys relationships, personal peace, joy, happiness, and even health? Do we see this mentality in society at large? And, and if so, point out where you see this mentality operating in society at large. Have you ever heard of the entitlement mentality? Entitlement, entitled to certain benefits, position that one is not qualified for? 
Pardon? I see it every day. I see it every day. Um, how about not taking responsibility for one's own short, shortcomings? Mm-hmm. It's someone else's fault. This is, our, this is our legal justice system. The civil lawsuits that we get, it's like, not my fault that my child tripped me in the store. I'm going to sue the store anyway. You haven't seen these lawsuits? Yeah, it's this sense of, yeah. Um, and if it's someone else's fault, then where does one look for the solution? If it's not my fault, someone else's fault, where do we look for the solution? Whatever government law structure that's been uh, enacted. Yeah, does, so does this idea of entitlement and it's not my fault, somebody else did this to me, and does that lead to introspection? Does it lead to searching one's own heart? Does it lead to uh, growth and maturity and learning lessons and, and, and development? No, it doesn't. It, it, it causes a certain mental and emotional um, developmental delay, mm-hmm. if you want to put it that way. Learning to get away with it. Learning to get away with it, yes. Even, even, and when I was in Australia last year, one of the things we noticed, we went to some public like park-type things, and they have like vehicles that are maintenance vehicles, you know. And patrons would just jump on the side and, and hang on the rail and get a ride across the thing, and nobody said anything. See, if you fall over there, it's on you. Could you imagine doing that in a park here? No, because if you, if you just hung, hung on the side of the thing or just got on the back of the, of the tailgate and got it right across the, the campus there and you fell, who's, what happens here in America? <laughs> Whomever the organization is gets sued, see? But over there, it's still that the, the mentality, hey, you're an adult. If you do that and you get hurt, it's on you. Do you, see, do you see how foreign that is? Do you see how conditioned we are that, oh no, they, they let them ride? Oh no, they, it's their fault. They should have taken responsibility for that person's behavior. Well, to be unrealistic expectations. Unrealistic expectations, yeah. So how does this type of mentality play out in our theology? Does it? Does it impact the, our theology, our view of God? It isn't fair if we don't punish sin. Sin has to be punished. It's not fair. I've kept the rules my whole life. They didn't. They can't get away with that. You, you don't get this attitude sometimes in theology and church? Yeah. Uh, we can't, or the other end of that spectrum, we can't do anything to overcome sin, so we claim the legal payment of Jesus for our sins, past, present, and future, and then we keep on living the same old lifestyle because it's all paid for anyway. Yes? Didn't Christ have a parable about that with the reapers? Some guys worked all day, and some guys just worked a few hours, and they both got the same reward, and so the guys that worked all day were upset. Yes, yes, exactly. That's a good one. Went out and got the workers in the field, remember? Yeah. And, and, and what they miss, see, this is that, that, that mentality of what I get is my pay at the end of the day, and, and I should get a better pay. Well, what is the pay at the end of the day in our relationship with God? eternal life everybody gets eternal life it gets healed we all get healed well they shouldn't be as healed as me (laughs) but see the problem is those who went out in the morning started the healing process much earlier which means they not only were healthier sooner so they didn't suffer as much under the weight of sin because they also had the privilege of working with the master they had a relationship was building but see they missed all that because they were looking for a selfish payment yes Maybe that's why if it's someone really close to us, we really appreciate the deathbed conversion. But if it's somebody that's not close to us, we're very judgmental and we say, I love the deathbed conversion. Isn't it true? And oftentimes, yeah. Everybody hear that? Yeah. You know, that, that type of behavior doesn't 
build very good teams either, even in the workplace. For instance, when I give bonuses to my employees, I give everybody the same amount because we have to succeed as a team where the organization doesn't succeed. Mm -hmm. there's, there's actually examples in the workplace of, of this phenomenon. And then there's the example of, well, if I'm going to get the same bonus anyway, why should I try as hard? That person didn't work nearly as hard as I was. I was here. I worked 40, I worked 40 extra hours a month. They didn't come in any extra. In fact, they called in sick three times a week, but they got the same bonus as me. Why should I work so hard? Well, the person that's got an absentee problem won't be there for this time. <laughs> so, so this, this idea of blame, while, while it isn't our fault that we were born with the condition with which we were born, born in sin, conceived in equity, it's not our fault. It is our fault if we reject a free remedy that's offered to us. You see the difference? Absolutely. Yeah. So... Is, so as they talk about humility, uh, heavenly wisdom, is humility the same as passiveness? As failing to stand up for oneself? Does humility mean one allows others to abuse, control, dominate them? Does humility mean being intimidated, backing down, giving in, surrendering to the more aggressive? Is that what humility means? Does, you know, humility, meekness, is that what this means? No. So what, what does, what, how do you parse the difference? How do you handle, well, we're, we're just meek and humble, and we just let people, how do you, how do you parse that difference? What do you, have you known people like this, the meek, humble, and they just let people walk over them? And they often use that as a badge of, of, of martyrdom. So how do you parse the difference? What's the difference between meek, being meek and humble, and being a doormat. Well, if we don't have our ego in it, then we can be humble. But to be passive is maybe even passive aggressiveness uses a tool. Okay, yes. Often being a doormat is actually ultimately at the very bottom layer in our own best interest because it, yeah. it feeds our need to be something. And so we can be the ultimate humble person ultimate martyr yes but if our humility to me means not putting myself first in any any respect but being a doormat doesn't put the other person's best interest first often it lets them continue thinking lies so what is the motive primarily do you think that drives people to be the passive doormats the the, the emotional motive that drives them Fear. Is it love for others that drives them to do that? It's, it's fear. Fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, fear of conflict, fear of not being liked, fear of, fear of what others will think of them. It's not primarily love, even though they rationalize. I see this in my office all the time. They rationalize, oh, I'm a peacemaker. Oh, I don't want to cause conflict. Oh, I want to be loving. I want to be kind. But they're not being loving and kind. When they're... At the bottom, it's about protecting self. Exactly. That's, which is fear-based. Exactly right. So... We look to Christ. Was Christ humble? Yes. Did he give in to the demands of others? No. <laughs> did he do what others wanted him to do? No. Did he change his methods? In other words, did he stop teaching the truth about God? Did he stop healing on the Sabbath? Did he stop associating with publicans and prostitutes? Did he stop speaking with women and Samaritans? Now, he didn't stop any of his business. He went forward. But did he go out seeking to antagonize his opposition? No. no, he didn't do that either, did he? 
See? He sought to heal, to restore, to reveal truth, to dispel lies, to reconcile, to build bridges, to disentangle confusion, to restore love, to destroy selfishness. He, he had a mission. He had a purpose. And if you notice, when, when we have that love for others and we see other people and we're interested in freeing, healing, restoring, sharing the truths with others, self is lost sight of, isn't it? And his mission was just as focused on the Sadducees and Pharisees as it was at the women at the well. Exactly. But he was wise enough to realize the woman at the well was willing to listen. Most of the scribes and Pharisees were not. And so he said, don't cast your pearls before swine lest they turn and rend you asunder. Now, notice, think that through. Don't cast your insults before swine lest they turn and cast you. No, don't cast your pearls, your pearls of wisdom, your pearls of truth. That's, this is good stuff. This isn't bad stuff he's talking about. If, if, if you already know that the person is against you and, and their heart is closed to truth, presenting truth will only antagonize those people. And so we just smile and nod and move on. Don't, don't do that. Yeah. Um, can our actions be misunderstood and misinterpreted by others, even though we're doing the best we know how to, to do something humbly and meekly and in a loving way to help others, can they be misunderstood and misinterpreted? Were Christ's actions misunderstood and misinterpreted? Often, yeah. Yes. Christ was not a trained theologian. He didn't have a seminary degree. And what was the result in his day because of that? Did some of those with the degrees have pride such that they could not learn? <laughs> Who was he teaching without having... You know, learned. Yes. Did they discount the wisdom of Christ because of this? It was pride and arrogance and ability of the theologians to humble themselves and consider the truth could actually be understood by somebody without a theological degree. Good thing we don't do that today. <laughs> We're building, yes. Did the twelve apostles have a seminary degree? And what was the result there? Did they run up against the same problem? That, that the, the truths they shared were life-changing for the people, any people, because it's truth, but those with degrees couldn't accept it. They couldn't even evaluate it on its merits. They evaluated it based on the messenger, not on the merits of the truth itself. Yes? That was true of all the people with degrees. I mean, Joseph Arimathea. No, 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 that's, that's a good point. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, you know that that doesn't necessarily close your mind. No, thank you very much for that. You're right because there are Joseph Arimathea's, Nicodemus's, and some of the others were open. Paul eventually was was uh, open and, and came to the truth. But as a class, if you look at the Book of Acts and the conflicts that they ran into over and over again, those with the religious authority and positions of authority were often the ones most difficult to reach. And, and if you look at the process, the process I've I've observed seems to be that they're not even willing to evaluate the evidence for the, on, on the merits of the evidence itself. They evaluate it based on the merits of who's telling it. You don't have credentials, and if you don't have credentials, we're not listening to you. It seems to be the process. And, and the credentials primarily being credentials we've given, so if we've given the credentials, then it's really affirming us. You didn't get the credentials from our school. Jesus challenged their credibility and their credentials. Yes, he did, didn't he? So how do, how do we, when we have problems like this today, and trust me, we have problems like this today. <laughs> yeah. 
How do we handle it? What's our challenge? And, and it is a challenge. I want to tell you, it's a challenge for me to be humble. If you read in, in James, actually First John, talks about three primary pathways of temptation that people struggle with, struggle with. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's, that's sensualism, materialism, egotism. I really haven't been, and I've been genetically blessed, I haven't, had, I haven't had addiction issues. That's essential. I really haven't ever been tempted along those lines. I'm blessed that way. Some people struggle down those areas. Uh, I haven't really been tempted with a lot of materialistic things. Um, that's why I don't have a lot of money. Uh, but I have struggled with pride. That's hard. That's hard for me. My mom's going, yep. <laughs> um, so our challenge is to present the truth in love and leave people free. And, and I have really struggled, but I've grown in my ability. Just leave people free. Don't fight with them. Just leave them free. But we don't back down and give in on points of truth just because someone disagrees with us. And the person disagreeing is in a position of church leadership. This was one of the points of contention a few years back that somebody in a position of leadership, I should, well, he's the Lord's anointed. If he's the Lord's anointed, he can't be wrong. You should just submit to what he says. This was presented to me as an argument. I'm going, wait a second. How did that work out for Jesus? They tried that on him. Caiaphas and, and Annas, should he have submitted to their leadership because they were in positions of authority? Or Martin Luther? When, yes. I was saying the 15th, 16th century, you had the same thing. Yeah. You know, it was a divine right of rule. That's right. And uh, that, look what happened with that. I think the same type of pride, theological pride, leads to factions in Christianity at a large, not just within a body of believers, but Christianity is large. How many people won't learn from somebody not of their own denomination? Oh, they're not of our denomination. They can't know any truth at all. <laughs> Isn't it true? I mean, how many have this this perspective? Yes. Yeah. And what's interesting is our church, Seventh Avenue Church, was actually an amalgamation of all these other Protestant denominations. Exactly. But now we've institutionalized. Right. We set down the we set down the barriers. Uh, we you know one of the principles of our class. We don't want to arrive at the truth. We want to grow continually because truth is always advancing, always always developing. We want to keep growing in truth. But when you arrive at truth, you set down your stakes of truth. And then you begin defending. And any other advancement in light, you've got to prove it's wrong in some way. Because we've got our, our 28 fundamentals. And this is truth. Can't, can't change it. Last week we talked a little about the sanctuary. And we established what the sanctuary was 150 years ago. There can't be any change or advancement in understanding what that means. We have to stick with that understanding. We can't grow. Do you see a problem with that? Yeah. I'd ask the question the other direction, too. Is of those 28 fundamental beliefs, how many of them are absolutely necessary for your salvation? See, I like this question. This is one of the things that we've tried to also teach, and that is individual doctrines standing alone by themselves are really almost meaningless. The purpose of a doctrine is to connect it back to who God is in some way. It may be true, but is it essential? It, only to the degree it leads us to in intimacy and knowledge and experience with our Creator. Right. Okay, if, if we have the truth, for instance, whichever way you believe baptism is taught in the Bible, you have the truth on how that's done, and you do the ritual without any experience with God at all, what good does it do you? And this happens in a lot of religious organizations. You think they go through the ritual... 
but they have no experience with God at all. Versus a person who maybe has come to experience God through nature, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2, those who do not know the law but do by nature the things contained in the law, law unto themselves, showing the law has been written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness. And what's the new covenant? The law is written on the heart. Those who haven't heard Scripture, heard the stories of Scripture, but have responded to God as revealed in, in nature and have the principles of love written on their heart, like maybe many, many, many good, spiritually mature American Indians before anyone ever came to this continent. And they worshipped the great spirit. And they lived in harmony with nature. And they wouldn't exploit others. And, and they were self-sacrificial and so forth and so on. But others who have gone through the right rituals would burn people, would burn those gracious um, Native Americans at the stake because they haven't been baptized in the right way. Well, God showed it this pleasure to the Israelites for doing just that in the Old Testament. Do you have- through the rituals, but not having... The heart. Over and over again, Isaiah, Amos, Micah, all the, all the minor prophets and some of the major prophets chastised them over and over again for doing these rituals by rote without actually understanding the meaning of the ritual. And they were just teaching tools. The ritual is designed to teach us something to transform our minds and characters, not to do something physiological. So the truth stands on its own. If it's true, it's true. It really doesn't matter who says it. For instance... Didn't the devils at one point acknowledge Jesus as the Son of the Most High God? Were they wrong? Should we reject Jesus because a demon said he's the Son of the Most High God? Well, demon said it, so he can't be true. (laughs) But should we believe it because a demon said it? No, we shouldn't either. So why should we believe Jesus is the Son of the Most High God? Why should we believe that? Ah, because we have evidence, lots and lots of evidences, evidences of prophecies fulfilled in his life, evidences of what he actually did while he was on earth and how he lived his life, evidences of the law of love built into nature then acted out in the life of Christ and how he treated others, the perfection of his self-sacrifice. I mean, yes, we have lots of evidences. All right, Sunday's lesson. First paragraph, it says, Some commentators think that the entire third chapter of James has to do with what qualifies or disqualifies people to be teachers. Naturally, the wise and understanding would seem to be good candidates, but the scope seems to be broader, encompassing the whole congregation. The wisdom James describes here and throughout the epistle is not primarily the intellectual variety so esteemed by ancient Greeks in many Western countries today. Rather, wisdom is seen in one's conduct and lifestyle as indicated by the Greek word for it, anastrophe, uh, translated conduct. Our actions and conduct testify as to how wise we are. Jesus taught the same saying, wisdom is justified by her children. Thoughts about this? What do you think about wisdom? Yes? It's kind of like the Pharisees. They may know a lot of stuff, but if they don't act accordingly, what good is it? I agree. So do you think that the the lesson is slightly mixing something? You know, they said intellectual wisdom. I'm going to suggest what they're talking about is knowledge. Knowledge and wisdom are different. See, what's knowledge? Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing it doesn't go in a fruit salad. (laughs) I mean, there's a functional difference, see? You would never put that in a fruit salad. That's how you live, how you function. You understand the wisdom of it. Knowledge is simply knowing the fact. 
And so, isn't really wisdom understanding and living in harmony with God's design methods, the way things are actually constructed to operate? Not just understanding it, but living in harmony with it. But there's a certain understanding required to live in harmony with it, isn't there? Yeah, and the more we understand it, does it make it harder to live in harmony with it? I can tell you my personal life, the more I've come to understand the law of love built into nature, design law versus imposed law, it's made it so much easier to live in harmony with it than when it was just a list of rules I had to keep. Is that not true for the rest of you? Yeah. So let's look at then Bible wisdom. This is Luke 17.33. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. That's Jesus speaking. Does this sound wise from a worldly perspective? Why is this unwise from a worldly? Uh, Actually, go through the reasons from a worldly perspective and how the world operates. Why is that unwise? Because the fittest has to survive. From a worldly perspective, is there a God? No. No. Is there an afterlife? No. No. Uh, There's only here and now. You've got the few years you've got, and you better make the most of them. So from a worldly perspective, how can it be sensible to just give your life away? This is it. Yes? When I was an adolescent, there was a car company that came out with a slogan that said, the one who dies with the most toys wins. Yes. And which fully encapsulates that, uh, that idea that we're here to accumulate all we can, and whoever gets the most wins. Yep, this is your life. You better get all you can while you're here because once it's over, it's gone. Of course, Jesus said, what's the profit of man to gain the entire world and lose his soul? You see, there's a different wisdom. The wisdom of the world is, hey, we evolved from slime billions and billions of years over time. And we're only here for a brief period to do our evolutionary contributions to the species that will eventually replace human beings on earth and we'll be forgotten, so just enjoy yourself while you're here. That isn't very inspiring to me. The thing is, you can't take your toys with you as you leave, but you can take your soul with you. Yeah, but not from a worldly perspective. See, this is a heavenly perspective, see? Yes, yeah, so you're exactly right. You're going down real wisdom. But from the world's perspective, there's no soul to take. Such thinking, though, this worldly wisdom is all based on lies. There's no God, there's no eternal life, there's, there's just survival of the fittest. Watch out for yourself now. But when, yes? There are altruistic people, though, um, who are, are loving and kind and, and give of their um, means and so forth to others. Th- that's true. And for what reasons, I'm not really sure, excepting they feel that they have a moral obligation, not based on biblical um, morals, but just morals in general. But maybe they're a law unto themselves, like you said a while ago. Maybe. I mean, is there are some like that? that I have a friend who grew up an Adventist who's an atheist, a very strong atheist, and he doesn't believe in God because he doesn't feel like there's any evidence, uh, hard fact evidence of God's existence because he, he he's a scientist and he knows all about these wonderful things that science does. So he, he has a really hard time understanding God from a... Um, Perspective where God, you know, touches your heart, or because that's not a fact; it's nothing you can um, study or prove. Um, so, 
Oh, but he's a good man. Like he's as good as any of us. He's very altruistic and kind and loving and a good husband and all that stuff. So. And, and, and it would be interesting to have a conversation with him uh, about why. What, why is that the case? What motivates him to do that? He may be a candidate for your next book. You know, and, with the, and, it, and it's, it's, I'm sure it's love for his family. You're going to see him in heaven because Absolutely. he just has a bad picture of God. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So. Well, I think a lot of people reject man's religion, but not necessarily God. Russell? It's, it's naive to think that the Holy Spirit is not uh, speaking and contending with those who don't believe in the Holy Spirit. No, but he is. Of course the Holy Spirit is contending with these people and reaching them in manners that, that it would be impossible for us to us to do as humans and, and for us to even understand. There's a hand over here. I think that many atheists have gone through maybe a stage where they've thought, okay, life's about me, life's about surviving, and it has proved very unfulfilling. So I think a lot of them become secular humanists who believe these principles of furthering the total societal good and helping others above themselves because they see those principles work they've just taken the god part out of them yeah i had a conversation sometime back on on our uh, website with a um a scientist atheist uh who said they love everything i teach but why do i have to put god in there (laughs) (laughs) they love the circle of love giving the circle of love the law of liberty and all these different design laws and this whole thing but why do i have to stick a god in there just take god out and it'll be great yeah, that's it. Okay. He gave you that wisdom. Yeah. So, but I agree with you. And so the question to ask is, well, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And a lot of these people don't believe in God. They, it's a God that is so corrupt and ugly that it doesn't need to be believed in. It's one should be rejected. And they haven't come personally yet to encounter the truth of who God really is. So they're holding to those elements of God's character as seen in nature... And in the Bible. In the Bible, yes, but they're not going there. That's seen in nature, and that's exactly what Paul's talking about. So, yeah, they're closer than those who go to church every week holding to the, 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 the punishing, eternal, cosmic dictator who must execute the wicked in the end. Yes. I would challenge any scientist to hold a newborn child and explain that scientifically. Okay, you're... I think God is more concerned, more diligently pursuing us understanding his character and his ways and his nature than he is about us even accepting him. I think people that, I mean, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't worry about that. You know what I mean? God cares about us understanding his way. If we understand his way, when Jesus comes again, we're going to look up and go, doggone, there is a God. And I like him because Mm -hmm. he looks like what I like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's right. I think that's exactly the point. Understanding God's nature of love, which can be understood as being seen in, in, uh, in nature. Remember Jesus used the parable? Very, very truly I say, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. What principle is being described there? Yes, way in the back. A listener is asking a question, uh, does it matter to God if someone believes in him? It, 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 does it matter to God if someone believes in him? Well, God hasn't actually spoken to me, so I can't really speak directly for what matters to him personally. But my suspicion is, because he is a God of love, that he wants a personal relation with everyone. And so it matters to him that, that he's been misrepresented, lied to, and people reject him, because it it undermines 
his relationship from his side, but from our side, he understands it's damaging to the person who's disconnected from him. And this is why the first commandment, thou shalt know the gods before me, it's not because God needs it, it's because... We, we, the law of worship, by beholding we become changed, we actually become like that which we admire and worship. And if we worship anything other than the true God, we degrade ourselves. We are the highest created beings on planet Earth. There's nothing on planet Earth we can worship and grow. So if we reject God and we worship anything else, now this person's rejected God, but what are they worshiping? They're worshiping the law of love as seen in nature, which is an expression of God, even though they're not worshiping God. So these are the people that worship God ignorantly. They don't know they're worshiping God, but they're still worshiping God. It's something higher than themselves. This law of love is, is woven into nature is, is an expression of God's character. So yes, I think it does matter because he doesn't want any of us to die, and we'll die if we disconnect from him permanently. Um, second paragraph says, Interestingly, the only place in the Old Testament where the phrase translated wise and understanding is found is in Moses' admonition to Israel to observe the laws that God had commanded. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So, think about that. If we keep the laws given to Moses... People will look in and say, this is a wise and understanding people. 2,000 years ago, was there a group that were keeping those rules? They were, they were, they were tithing even on the herbs in their garden. They were worshiping on the right day. They, uh, they, they did all the sanctuary rituals. They didn't eat any of the wrong foods. I mean, they were keeping that law. Does everybody look back at that time and say, man, those people who lived 2,000 years ago, they were a wise and understanding people. It was very wise of them to reject Jesus and crucify him. That was a wise thing to do. There's a problem here, isn't there? Um, what, about, what about modern Israel? There's, there's modern Israel today. There are, there are very, very conservative Jewish people today that are keeping that law as best they know how, very rigidly. And, and especially, here's one of the laws given to Moses, Exodus chapter 20, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. And you see that being practiced in Israel today. This is why they always strike back, always strike back. Because under level two, level of moral development, it is an injustice and it's immoral not to give back in kind what was given to you. So if someone has hurt you, you must do that same pain back to them or else it's immoral. This is level two, moral development. And they're still practicing this level. Um, Do we look at that and go, what wise people? What wise people? 4,000 years of constant war. It's so wise. Or do we look at South Africa and Nelson Mandela and after apartheid, which these, these, these black people were so abused and mistreated, they come to power and what do they do? They had tribunals of forgiveness. You come in and you just confess what you've done and you're pardoned and forgiven and there's no punishment. Which was better? Which is wiser? This is what happened. That's why they're, that's why they're not in war. What would have happened if they sought to punish those people? There would be a civil war. Didn't happen. Yet those people in the Middle East are keeping those laws given to Moses. Or are they? Am I suggesting that the wisdom of God in the Old Testament is actually not wise? Am I suggesting that? Not at all. Absolutely not. What I'm pointing out is that one can read the Scripture and misunderstand it such that they carry out God's wisdom foolishly. And how do they misunderstand it and carry out foolishly? The basic problem is they read it through an imposed law lens. 
It's a bunch of rules to be kept. Rather than understanding, there are principles how life is designed to operate by our creator God, the principles of love. Wisdom comes when we function and recognize God's laws, how he's actually designed things to operate and live in harmony with them. Here's a description of foolish law-keeping contrasted with wise law-keeping. Out of Signs of the Times, July 22, 1897. A sullen submission to the will of the Father will develop the character of a rebel. By such a one, service is looked upon as drudgery. It is not rendered cheerfully. And in the love of God, it is mere mechanical performance. If he dared, such a one would disobey. His rebellion is smothered, ready to break out at any time in bitter murmurings and complaints. Such service brings no quietude to the soul. And then Christ's Object Lessons, page 97. The man who attempts to keep the commandments of God from a sense of obligation merely, because he's required to do so, will never enter into the joy of obedience. He does not obey. When the requirements of God are accounted a burden because they cut across human inclinations, we may know that the life is not a Christian life. True obedience is the outworking of a principle within. It springs from the love of righteousness, the love of the law of God. The essence of all righteousness is loyalty to our Redeemer. This will lead us to do right because it is right, and right doing is pleasing to God. Do you hear the difference? we got a bunch of rules, and we got to keep those rules. God is a God who's made life to operate in harmony with his nature. This is how things are built. We love that, and we love him. We want, we want to do that. It makes sense. So... I had a friend who told me that when he was a child, his mother had a rule that he couldn't smoke, and if he ever started smoking, that she'd punish him, so he didn't smoke. Then one day, when he was 14 years of age, he was coming home from school, and some neighbors behind the barn were smoking, and they offered him a cigarette, and so under peer pressure, he smoked a cigarette that day. And then, when he got home, his mother smelled it on him. And she sat him down with tears in her eyes and said, son, if you ever begin smoking, you're going to break my heart. And he loved his mother. He said, that just got him. That just broke his heart. And, and he never smoked again. Now, as an adult, older than I am, it's a true story, why do you think he doesn't smoke today? Does he not smoke it? Well, you know, I'd really like to smoke, but my mother has a rule, and if she catches me, she'll punish me. <laughs> well, I'd really like to smoke, but I know if I do, it'll break my mama's heart, so I won't. Is that why he doesn't smoke? No. How many Christians? Well, God has a law, and if I do it, he'll punish me. I'm not going to break the law because he'll punish me. Well, I've come to see what amazing God is and how much he loves me, and, and that breaks my heart. And, and because I love him, I don't want to hurt him, so I won't do it because I don't want to hurt him. Is this really maturity? Or does the, my friend came to understand, hey, wait a minute, smoking is actually out of harmony with how life is built operated. It breaks physiological laws, and it's destructive to my being. Now I understand why mom had that rule, because I wasn't smart enough to figure that out when I was a kid. Now I understand why it would break my mama's heart, because it would kill the one she loves. Wow, I wouldn't want to do that. It's written on the heart now. I'm a non-smoker in who I am. That's me, non-smoker. The law is written on the heart. That's, the, that's where God is trying to lead us, to write the law on the heart. Not to do the things because it's a rule. This, this immature obedience is, we've got a rule, we're going to keep it. But in my heart, <laughs> I'd really rather not. But I don't want to get punished, so I won't. Yes, Wendell. The continuation of that is that when you see someone else sp- smokes, it breaks your heart. Mm-hmm. If you're at that higher level. But if you're still at that lower level, the prodigal son and his older brother... Okay, and you see somebody smoking, they, they deserve to be punished. I haven't smoked. I'm better than you. You're a smoker. Oh, you don't think this is real? It, it, just see what would happen if, if, 
in any of the local churches that the break between the study service and church service, somebody went on the back porch and lit a cigarette. What would happen? And maybe it was one of the deacons. What would happen? One of the elders. The pastor. The pastor's wife. I mean, what would happen? Would most people go, oh, my heart's breaking for her. I think you're right. That's the mature. That's what we ought to do. I think you're exactly right. Our heart should break for them. Oh, how sad. But what would most likely happen instead? Cell phone videos posted on YouTube. Yeah. And you see the difference. Think about the the person in a 12-step program. An alcoholic. And, And they came in because after eight months of sobriety, they relapsed and binged this weekend and had, you know, two-fifths of vodka and, and a binger. And they come into the 12 steps program and say, hey, I'm an alcoholic and I binge this weekend. How are they treated? Well, it's exactly what you say. Our heart's breaking for you. Our heart's breaking for you. We care about you. We don't condemn you. We just don't want to see you destroy yourself. Why is it we get more grace in a 12-step meeting than in church? Because 12-step meetings are operating on design law, understanding that that person is destroying themselves. Whereas churches are operating on imposed Roman law, we got a bunch of rules and you break them, justice requires punishment. That's why. The false law, just as Daniel 7 prophesied, they will seek to change God's law. How? By getting us to believe it's a system of rules that must be be punished when they're broken. And it leads to intolerance. Here's one out of Thoughts Amount of Blessing, 123. When this happens, when we go down this type of obedience trail, listen to this. The efforts to earn salvation by one's own works inevitably leads men to pile up human exactions as barriers against sin. More rules. Got to keep the rules. For seeing that they fail to keep the law, they will devise rules and regulations of their own to force them to obey. All this turns the mind away from God to self. His love dies out of the heart, and with it perishes love for his fellow men. A system of human invention with its multitudinous exactions will lead its advocates to judge all who come short of its prescribed human standard. The atmosphere of selfish and narrow criticism stifles the noble and generous emotions and causes men to become self-centered judges and petty spies. Wow, man, I lived there. (laughs) I was one of those one time. I grew up and went through the system. I was trained to be like this. Was I the only one that was trained to be this way? No. And it was no fun. There was no joy. We actually got pleasure out of sitting back and gossiping about somebody who got pregnant out of wedlock. Did you hear somebody got pregnant out of wedlock? Someone got divorced. What? Someone got divorced. Yes. Yes. There was no sadness. There was no heartbreaking. We were petty judges, petty spies and self-centered judges. Monday's lesson, top of the lesson says to read James 3, uh, 15 and 16, and then says, what is, what is his description of worldly wisdom? What are the common ways we see the wisdom manifested in the world or even the church? And I'll read that uh, 13 through 16 from my paraphrase. It says, who, are you, who of you is wise enough to understand God's methods and principles? Then show it by living in harmony with God's design for life, a life of love, in action, giving, in humility, to bless and uplift others. But to cherish self-centered, arrogant, mean-spirited, jealous motives in the heart misrepresents God and defames the truth. Such principles do not originate in God nor come from heaven, but are profane and destructive and originate in Satan. For selfishness 
envy, and all violations of God's law of love break his design for life and cause chaos, disease, suffering, and everything evil. So what are the ways the wisdom of the world is commonly manifested in the world and in the church? So I'm going to go with the world first and just run some bullets down. And then I'll let you guys be thinking, do we have anything like this in the church? In the world, vengeance. This is worldly wisdom. We must hunt down and punish those who have done wrong. This is called justice, but it's vengeance. Coercion. We must put sanctions on those who don't live and do what we want. We will use our, our economic powers and others to sanction them to, until, they, until they do what we want. This is coercion. And this is exactly what Revelation describes as the beast. No one can buy or sell save him who has the mark of the beast. It's coercion, economic coercion, coercive pressure to get you to conform to a certain way of worship at some point in the future. Violence designed to injure, notice I said violence designed to injure, hurt, exploit, dominate, take advantage. See, there's this, there's this false passivity that I think sometimes enters Christianity where we can never use force. Well, psychiatrists use force on psychotic patients. We put them in four-point restraints and then medicate them to restore their mind to themselves. It would, be, it would be cruel to not intervene in a psychotic patient's life to restore them to sanity. Let them go out and run naked down the street in front of a, in front of a train. That would be cruel, would it not? There's a place for restraining force. Also, a serial rapist murderer. There's a place to restrain him and put him in prison where he can't go out and hurt others, but it's not just others he's hurting. Do you understand? He's destroying his own soul, searing his conscience, warping his character. Paul says piling up wrath for the day of wrath by just piling up more evil in his own heart and character. We're protecting him from himself to do this. There's a place for, for a restraining use of force, not a seeking of vengeance to make them pay. You see the difference? Yes. The, um, pleasure seeking for pleasure seeking sake live for today for tomorrow we die this is another human um, com- uh, manifestation of human wisdom how about racism sexism bigotry prejudice when I told Christy this one uh, valuing other humans less than human she goes nobody thinks that's wisdom in the world really they, they say well did the Nazis think that was wise to wipe out the Jews and the gypsies yeah it wasn't that long ago are there still people that think this way today Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a worldly wisdom out there that, that segregates people and thinks some are less valuable than others. Exploitation of God's creation for, for your own self. How about killing for pleasure and sport? Mm-hmm. Hunting. Not for the purpose of calling a population so there won't be mass starvation. I understand there's a need. There's so many deer. If we don't cull them, they will be mass starvations. It's a mercy. But for the, the pleasure of killing. Hmm. Sexual perversity marked as sexual diversity. Is that a way of the world? Sexual perversity marketed as sexual diversity. In, idolatry. And I won't even go into all the forms of that. Seeking to get the highest office, the most recognition, the biggest paycheck, the biggest church, perhaps. Oh, we're, oh, we haven't got there yet. All right, so in church, let's go through some of the ways this worldly wisdom infects church. Sexism, bigotry, and prejudice. We don't have that problem in the church, right? So there is no restriction on leadership in the church to men. We haven't restricted leadership in the church to men. There's no sexism in the church. Or have we? Mm, interesting. Or restrict the leadership of the church to seminary-trained people. A scholastic bigotry. Only people who've been... You know, the scripture, if you look in scripture, there was no scholastic qualification to be a leader in the church. 
It was a character and knowledge and experience of God, not a scholastic one, to be a leader in the church. The first apostles, none of them had that scholastic training other than Paul when Paul became an apostle. He was one. So why do we have this, this scholastic bigotry in the church? I think, it, I think it actually damages the functioning of the church because it denies the church the benefit of a plethora of experiences and perspectives that would help us take the message in multiple different ways. But we get locked into a certain way of thinking and we can't be flexible and we can't actually show the multifaceted aspect of God's character that we could do if we had a broader range of leadership. We have scholastic bigotry. Denominationalism. Arrogance that we are saved because we belong to a certain denomination. You can't be saved unless you're part of the remnant church. And the remnant church is not a remnant of people who have a character like Christ. Remember remnant of a fabric? Okay? Fabric remnants are the they have the same exact pattern as the very first piece that came off. It's the remnant. It's the last little bit on that bolt of cloth. The remnant have the same character that Christ had. That's what they have. But we've, we've exchanged that and say, no, the remnant have the same list of rules and, and, and observe the same rituals. And you have to belong to a certain denomination. How about coercion? The church doesn't use coercion, does it? And that, when I say the church, I'm not talking about any particular denomination. I'm talking within the landscape of Christianity. Uh, sanctions in churches. Coercion to conform rather than leaving people free to think and explore new ideas humbly. You can't, you can't use our facilities. You can't. There's no cursive pressures, are there? How about teaching that certain rituals are required for salvation or exaltation and then holding those rights hostage to paying an honest tithe? You can't participate in those rights unless you pay an honest tithe and you've got to prove your honest tithe to your local pastor by showing your tax receipts. And then if you do, you can get your card and you can go take part in these, these uh, rituals that are necessary. Without them, you can't be exalted. I don't make this stuff up. Coercion. Or denom- uh, or teaching that a church holds the keys to your salvation and only by participating in that organization with certain rituals that organization can do, certain sacraments, and without those sacraments you can't be saved. Coercion. Teaching God's kingdom runs like human governments, legal models of atonement. Boy, that's, that's humanistic. Bringing God down to our level. He's not the creator who built the fabric of the cosmos and his laws are the protocols upon which life exists. No, he is a dictator like a Roman dictator and his laws are no different than human laws. We've just diminished him so much. Idolatry. Here's a quote out of Faith I Live By, page 59. Thousands have a false conception of God and his attributes. They are as verily serving a false God as were the servants of Baal. Are we worshiping the true God as he's revealed in his word, in Christ, in nature? Or are we adoring some philosophical idol enshrined in his place? Notice, philosophical idol, not a physical little totem. God is a God of truth. Justice and mercy are his attributes of his throne. He is the God of love, of pity, ten- pity and tender compassion. Thus he is represented in his Son, our Savior. He is a God of patience and long-suffering. If such is the being whom we adore and to whose character we are seeking to assimilate, we are worshiping the true God. I'm going to jump to, uh, uh, let's move over to Tuesday's lesson. It asks us to read James 4, 1 through 3. James 4, 1 through 3. This is from uh, my paraphrase. It says, why is there so much hostility, fighting, and arguments among you? Because the survival of the fittest instinct controls you. If you want something, but don't get it, you're willing to kill. You're selfish, coveting what you cannot have, constantly fighting, trying to get for yourselves. You do not obtain because you do not seek God. 
And when you finally do ask God, because your motives are selfish, because you focus on self-gratification, you don't get what you're asking because God doesn't use his power to supply you with means to further damage yourselves. What do you think? You don't get what you're asking because you're asking for the wrong thing. God doesn't want to see you destroy yourself. Our minds are out of balance. We have two antagonistic motives operating in our hearts. Those motives of fear and selfishness coming from limbic system circuitry and motives of altruistic love coming from higher cortex. There was a study done recently, a very interesting study, between hedonistic and eudaimonic states of well-being. Hedonistic are basically pleasures of the senses, food, drugs, alcohol, sex, uh, these things that make you feel good physiologically and, and so forth. This is hedonism. And eudaimonic uh, pleasure is deeper meaning, purpose, and altruism. Uh, doing something for a larger purpose than yourself. Selflessness, in other words. And they took the group of people and, and who were living both lifestyles. Some were hedonistic, some were eudaimonic. And they asked them uh, to fill out this questionnaire, which was a rating scale on states of well-being and affect. And they scored the same. They both came out with the same scores of emotional well-being. Then they took white blood cell counts, and they look at their white blood cells, and look at gene expression in their white blood cells, and there were significant differences in how their genes were expressed. Those living the, the altruistic lifestyle had their genes expressed such that they had down-regulated inflammatory genes, meaning they had less inflammation, and up-regulated infection-fighting genes. So they were less likely to get infected and less likely to have inflammatory problems. Whereas the hedonistic uh, lifestyle people had upregulated inflammatory genes and downregulated in- infection-fighting genes. So they both said, I feel good. You couldn't tell just how they felt. But physiologically, the one group was actually accelerating the aging process, increasing disease process, increasing risks of dementia and other mental health problems. The other group was protective on a physiologic basis. Only in harmony with God's design is our life and health and happiness. It's really profound. Now, this is design law that we're talking about here. It's not an imposed rule. Did God send angels down from heaven to alter the gene expression of these two groups? No. No. Life is designed to live in harmony with God's design, and thus, the Bible says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. When you're in harmony with the law... You revive. It's healthy for you. It's restorative. So the example, you got that plastic bag over your head and you're passing out. All we have to do is take off the bag, put you in harmony with the law, and you revive. Don't do anything else. Just put you in harmony with the law and you revive. This is what God is trying to do. I want to write my law in your heart and mind. I want you to live in harmony with my ways of doing things. Truth, love, freedom. The big three. Proverbs 21.21 says, Whoever pursues righteousness and love finds life. life. Think that through. Pursue righteousness and love, you find life. Why do you find life there? Righteousness and love, why do you find life? Why? That's our design. That's, that's how it's built. That's exactly right. That's exactly, it would be like we're all, if we're all you know, uh, submerged at the bottom of the ocean, struggling for, and we said, whoever finds oxygen finds life. <laughs> okay? That's what it's saying. That's because that is the oxygen. This is what life is built upon. In the bottom pink section of 
Wednesday's lesson, it says, look at yourself, what makes you worthy of salvation? Nothing. Well, well, (laughs) I did not like this particular wording. See, this particular wording and word selection here, I I think I'm going to be able to get the gist of what they're saying, but this word selection, this word, word worthy, is also the same root word as worth. Oh, Wendell, go ahead. At the bottom of my lesson, I wrote, We are his diseased children. A loving father does not abandon his children because they have self-induced terminal illness. Exactly. Exactly. And see, many of my patients struggle with this. Do we have worth? Aren't we God's workmanship? Aren't we his children? Uh, descended to, from Adam? Don't we have worth inherent in who we are as his creation, his design? I have many patients who struggle with this, with low self-worth, thinking they are unworthy of salvation, too sinful, too dirty, too defiled, too ugly for God to save. And questions like this reinforce that distortion. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Each of us has worth as God's creation, and this is demonstrated in Christ's sacrifice for us. So what makes me worthy of salvation? Notice the the reasons I list here. The handiwork of God, the life given me by God, makes me worth salvation. The purpose of God in creation of humanity. He had a purpose for creating humanity. That makes humanity worth salvation. God's purpose for me now as his redeemed child and God's love for me. All of these make me worthy. But perhaps the question would have better been worded for their intent this way. What can I do or bring that originates with me that earns the right for me to be saved? Now, if that's what they meant, I would agree there's nothing. But the way they worded it, it lends itself too easily for people to feel that they're they're worthless. Every human being has worth. Christ gave his life Mm -hmm. for every human being. Yes. This goes back to, I think, the definition for many Christians of grace as unmerited favor. It is favor. God is a gracious being. But it's because he values us. And, And unmerited in the sense, and there's a truth in that, if you understand, it's given without us doing anything to earn it. Because of who he is. Because, exactly. There's nothing we can do to earn it because it's already given. It's like the sunshine. The sunshine is there. You don't have to earn it. It's there. It's always there. No matter what you do, it's there. God's grace is there. It's always there because that's who he is. And it shines on the righteous and the wicked equally. And it shines on the righteous and God's grace absolutely shines. And Jesus talked about this, how the, the rains or for the, and the sunshine are for the righteous and the wicked. The grace is there for all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it more incumbent on us to be good witnesses that we've received his grace? Yeah, yes, and so, and so this idea of unmerited stems out of that imperial thinking, that Roman law thinking still, that we have to earn something. Well, we can't earn it. It's granted to us in some imperial edict that we didn't earn. We get back over to design law, then we see, hey, yes, it is. we didn't earn it for sure. Because it's always there given to us. God is always gracious. The question is, will we benefit from this grace that's being poured out, this love that's being poured out, the sunshine that's being... Will we go out and let the sunshine help us? Or will we hide in caves of our own imaginations and dark lies and distortions and never come into the light of truth? It's always there. If you want to live a miserable life, 
it, with that kind of attitude, are we worthy? Look in the mirror every morning, and you'll live a miserable life seeing, trying to figure out if you're worthy or not. I agree. I agree. No, you're exactly right. So, but when I think about the new heaven and the earth, and I look in the mirror, I, I, I'm always glad to know this is not as good as God can do. <laughs> he can do better. <laughs> okay? So when you look in the mirror, be, be no, he can do better than this, right? Isn't it, isn't it exciting? I'm not going to need these glasses when, in the new heaven and the earth. Oh, my gray hair will be gone. Okay, go ahead, Lisa. I was listening to you last night. Some commentary on all our righteousness is as filthy rags, and Jesus paid it all. The commentary was based on that concept. And um, all our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sense that our good, the good things that we do can't begin to compare with God's goodness, and yet we're trying to be like Him. Isn't that kind of all of our remedies? All of the remedies we create for our condition are ineffective. Right. Are snake oil? They don't work. That's the way. That's what that means. That's all that means. All of our remedies to try to fix our condition. Mm-hmm. Don't work. They're not remedies. They don't heal. They don't restore. They don't regenerate. They don't recreate. In fact, they will actually make us worse because we become like Paul read in Romans. The law that was given to help diagnose what was wrong with me, I inadvertently thought was a cure, and I started working to keep the law, but I only got worse. So when God comes into our hearts and changes us, it's His works that are in our hearts. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, we we partake. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Mm-hmm. Our responsibility is to partake that which God has given. But just like a medicine, so I love this medicine analogy. You're diagnosed with some infection, right? And you can't cure yourself, right. but they're an antibiotic they give they give you freely. Now, did you create the antibiotic? No. no. Uh, if you believe in the antibiotic, I believe that really works. But you put it on the shelf and never take it. Well, your belief in it helped you if you don't partake of it. Mm-hmm. No, there's many people. The devils believe and tremble. They don't partake. We have to not only believe, we have to partake of Jesus Christ into our hearts and characters. Now, in the partaking, does the medicine now begin to do something in you you cannot do for yourself? Sure. Okay? Are you, though, because you're partaking, are you saying, I'm saving myself, it's all on me, it's my work, I'm doing it? No. No. You didn't create the remedy? The remedy's doing something you can't do? But you must partake. You must, this is what Jesus meant in John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And it's not cannibalism. It's metaphorical. You partake of the truth and partake of my character, the truth of who God is, and my character through the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, and then begin living that truth as you partake of me. Yeah, that's transformational. That's clarifying. Yeah. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have provided remedy to our condition. We also thank you. You provided the truth to win us to trust that we can trust you and open our hearts and receive all that you want to give to us. We ask that you will remove the distortions and misunderstandings from our minds, solidify us in the truth, not just in the knowledge of it, but the experience of it, that we can begin living it and sharing with others and open avenues that we can be effective as a team, as a, as, as, as a group of your, of your representatives to take this message to, to our neighbors and to the world around us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.